Uh, remain standing if you would and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, um, we thank you, God, so much that, that your word is, is powerful, that, that it cuts to the very core of our being, that, Lord, it can judge not only the actions of our lives and, and the thoughts that we have, but even the attitudes and, and the things, maybe the recesses and the corners of our hearts and our lives, Lord, that we aren't even bold enough to look into. And so we pray this morning that your word would accomplish its purpose uh, to uh, continue, Lord, to sanctify those who know you, but also, Lord, to set the captive free. Lord, those who are still in their bondage of sin, that they would be set free to be children of God. So we pray for your mighty work uh, to happen this day, to your glory and praise. It is in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, as we look at, uh, continue on in our study of the book of, of Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are a little dull in their faith. Intellectually, they know the truths about Jesus, but relationally, uh, the joy is not there. there. There's not that sense of, of, of relationship. They still believe what they once believed, but the road has become hard, and their zeal for the sake of Christ is, is waning. It's, it's becoming weak, and so they're struggling. And, and they're not ready to forsake God, but, but they do want him on their terms. And, and so some have thought about turning back to Judaism where they can get their families back, where, where they are able to get some relief from some of the heat that comes from following Jesus. And so the writer is attempting to help them to remember who they are in Jesus. 
that without Jesus, they are nothing. That they can believe in God and they can worship him, but to do so does not make them right with God. And so the writer this morning uses uh, two mountains, if you would, uh, to, to get his point across. Uh, he's going to look, first of all, at Mount Sinai, which represents the old covenant under Moses, and Mount Zion, which represents the, the new covenant under Christ. And so let's look at these pictures this morning. First of all, Mount Sinai in verses 18 through 21. Uh, the writer, it's interesting, doesn't even mention that this is Mount Sinai, but uh, it's, it's very easy to see that, that any Jewish reader would have understood this to be what had happened at, at Mount Sinai as he's talking about blazing fire, thunder, tempest, the sound of trumpets, the voice of whose words made them beg that it would stop. Uh, he's talking about Mount, Mount Sinai where, where God had delivered his people out of Egypt uh, from bondage and, and captivity as, as slaves and God led them out. He redeemed them from their captivity and brought them to Mount Sinai uh, where he spoke to them and he gave them the Ten Commandments. In other words, what we see here is a picture of how God redeems his people and then as, as redeemed people, uh, as they come to him, then he shares with them how they are to live in relation to who he is as God, but also how they are to live in relationship to one another as believers and to the world around them. And so that's what we see summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so he does this, establishing them as his covenant people under Moses as their covenant moderator. And, and you can see all of this in Exodus 19, and you're welcome to turn there if you want. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16 through 20. And, and as you read this account, you, you see it was a very terrifying sight. Now, you know, sometimes I think when we look at stories in the Bible, we think of them as only that, only as stories, not true life occurrences that really happen. And so keep in mind that this really did happen. And so seek to visualize the things that we're talking about here. And, and imagine if, if you were there um, and just it might help you to understand the reaction of the people. But, but there was this terrifying sight. There was thunder and there was lightning. There was a, a thick cloud on the mountain. And there was this sound of a trumpet blast that, that grew louder and louder and louder. And so the people in the camp trembled and they were terrified. And, and it says that Moses brought the people out of the camp to Mount Sinai, uh, to the foot of the mountain. And we read that the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And so you, you have this trumpet blast, you have this fire, you have this uh, smoke that rose up. And, and it, we read in this passage that the whole mountain trembled greatly. Now, we live in Kansas. We may not really understand mountains that much, but I think most of us have been to Colorado or other places, and we've seen mountains. And can you imagine as you're looking at these majestic mountains to see one that is trembling and shaking greatly? And, and understandably, the people were terrified. As a matter of fact, if you turn over to Exodus 20, verse 18, we read that the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. 
Now, everything about Mount Sinai and God's presence there basically communicated this. Don't come near. Stay away. It's, it's sort of like those signs you see if you go to an electrical power station, you know, where there's all this electricity that's pulsating through these wires, and you'll see signs that say things like high voltage, do not enter, you know, because it's a very terrifying place. And, and the people got the message. And, and if you look back at, at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 20, it says, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. You see, they, they could not come near to God or they would die because of his holiness. So terrifying was the sight that even Moses who was the man of God, who talked, eventually talked to God face to face. It says in verse 21 of Hebrews 12 that he trembled with fear at this sight. And that was the message of the old covenant, that God in his awesome holiness is not a safe God. He's not a safe God for intimacy with sinners. And so the relationship in that Old Testament, in the Old uh, testament, the old covenant between God and sinners was a relationship of fear and of distance. E even the tabernacle communicated this with all the different courts that you see. You have the courts where the people assembled, and then you had the holy place where the priests could come in and minister, and then you had the holy of holies where, where God dwelt, and only the high priest could go in once a year and offer sacrifices. And these are all barriers to keep the people from getting into the presence of God as sinners because to do so would have been death for the sinner. And God loves his people, so he protects them from his own holiness. Because at Sinai, sinful and unforgiven people stand before an infinite, holy, and perfectly just God, they do so guilty despicable and undeserving of forgiveness. And, and that's the picture that we have here, that the people are trembling because God is holy and he is perfect and, and, and his justice requires satisfaction for the sins of the people. And yet they have no defense against such a holy God. And you know, I know as human beings, we oftentimes can justify ourselves and think we're not really as bad as what we are. And don't we oftentimes excuse our sin? Well, you know, it's, I was tired or, or this happened or that happened. And, and we sort of justify the things that we do. And, and I think sometimes as we just think about our lives, we think, well, I'm not as bad as the, this person over here. But the one thing that the law of God does is it acts as a mirror. It, and we see ourselves for, for who we really are. And as we look at what God says in his word and, and in his law, it, it shows us how immeasurably short of God's standard of righteousness that we fall. And so, so there's not a single commandment that we can keep perfectly or that, um, that we have kept perfectly in our actions or in our attitudes or, or even in our thoughts. And so that's the nature of the old covenant, that God is teaching people the reality of sin. That's an awful thing. It's a devastating thing. And because we, by nature, don't think that we're as bad as we really are before God, we oftentimes don't see that. You know, often we only consider the awfulness of our sin 
as we feel the effects of it. In other words, we feel the consequences of our sins, and so we don't like our sins. But, but the sin itself, we oftentimes seek to, to grasp. We, we don't abhor our sin as we ought. But we really don't grasp how our sin offends the reality of God. It offends the righteousness and the holiness of God as well as his truth and his goodness. Uh, so when you sin by telling a lie as an image bearer of God, you offend the truthfulness of God. He abhors lies. God cannot lie. And when we lie as his image bearers, we, we are, um, it's an offense against who God is. Or when you lust after wealth or, or power or uh, reputation or pornography or whatever it is, as an image bearer of God, you are worshiping other gods. You are looking to other masters to rule your lives and giving them your allegiance. And yet the Bible tells us that God will share his glory with no one, nor allow us to worship other gods. This is an offense to the, the character of God because he is the living, holy, righteous, majestic creator God. And what we do when we sin against God is, is you are treating him as if he were nothing, uh, chasing after the things that he has creating, created. Um, when we do that, we end up violating his character. And so God is uh, offended as a result, and rightly so. And that's the character of sin. God in his justice is required to punish that sin. So the Old Covenant is meant to teach us about that sin, and, and that's what we see at Mount Sinai. But our text goes on in verse 22, and the writer says, but you, but you. He, he gives us wonderful words as, as the writer turns to address Christians, to those who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and he's letting them know, you are no longer at Mount Sinai. You are no longer at a place where God says, keep your distance because I am holy, and in my holiness, my wrath would consume you. But instead, you are at a different mountain, Mount Sinai. Uh, there's a new reality that's placed side by side with the reality of the old covenant. Uh, we are not at Mount Sinai. And, and some of us need to be reminded of that. We need to, to hear that. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians relate to God as if they did still live at Mount Sinai. A lot of Christians come to God and they have the law in one hand and, and the reality of their sin in another hand and they know that God is a holy God. And so there is fear in their relationship with God. There is dread. There is a, a distance between them and God. They, they look to people that they would consider to be more holy, and they think, wow, they can draw near to God, but, but I can't do that. That's not where I live. I'm afraid of God. And, and, and the truth is, how many of us are not afraid to die and, and to meet God? I mean, should Christians be afraid to die and to meet God? Well, not in our spirit. We might, in the weakness of our flesh, at times be struggling with that, but not in our spirit. And, and when that happens, what's going on? Well, maybe we're like these Hebrew Christians where we have forgotten what mountain that we are on, that we are now on Mount uh, Zion. Mount Sinai being the old covenant forbids the entrance of sinful people into the presence of God. But Mount Zion, the new covenant, is the mountain of grace. 
And the first thing I want us to see is, is that we have come. He says, we have come. The writer states that these Christians have come. They have arrived at a permanent place. That is, the temporary conditions of the old covenant have ended. And the everlasting terms of the new covenant have now prevailed. And he wants to remind them who they are in Jesus Christ and, and what they participate in as his children to encourage them in their times of persecution and in their times of suffering and their times of dullness of their faith. And so he says, first of all, that we come to a heavenly city on Mount Zion. Now, uh, for those of you that don't know your biblical geography so well, uh, Mount Zion is located in Jerusalem and, and is seen as the dwelling place of God. And we could look at a lot of scriptures, but let me just share one with you, uh, Psalm 132, Psalm 132, verse 13. And in this psalm, the writer says this, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now, the, the author here in Hebrews, as he refers to Zion, as he refers to Jerusalem, he's not referring to that strip of land there in, in uh, Israel in the Middle East. Actually, in verse 22, we see that he's talking about a heavenly Jerusalem. He's talking about heaven, the, the new Jerusalem. It's a place where Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, dwells. And, and brothers and sisters, this reminds us that our citizenship is in our home country in heaven. Uh, but in the meantime, until we are able to go there, we are living here as ambassadors on this earth. You know, the United States, as does every country, sends ambassadors to other nations. And their job is not to go and try to get assimilated into that culture as much as they can. Their job really is to represent and to be a voice and a presence for the United States in that foreign <coughs> land. And as Christians, we, it is the same for us. That, that even though we are here on this earth, we are already, already we are citizens of heaven. The laws we follow, the attitudes that we have, our citizenship, everything is uh, an allegiance to our God and our Savior. Um, and so we come to that holy city. But we also come to the church of the firstborn in verse 22 and 23. You see, the writer goes on to describe the citizens of that city in Jerusalem. And, and one day when we enter that heavenly city, one of the things that we'll see is a multitude of angels, all in festal array. If, if you want to call them, they're like a welcoming party. They're, they're inviting us to come and to join in the worship of the Lord. Now, just imagine how important this is, brothers and sisters, to remember as we live here upon this earth. You know, as we go through the trials, as we go through the afflictions, the difficulties of this life, as we are, are struggling, it can be so easy to be discouraged in the midst of the coronavirus, to feel a sense of being isolated and thinking, Lord, what, what is the purpose? What, you know, the world just seems to be falling apart and we can become so discouraged. But, but the writer wants to lift the vision of these believers up to say, but one day, one day when we face death and we enter into uh, that eternal city, uh, we will be welcomed by this multitude of angels that will invite us to come in and to worship the true and the living God with them. 
And not only are there angels there, but he talks about the assembly of the firstborn in verse 23. Now, we think sometimes in terms of birth order, we, there's books that are written on that, about the oldest or the youngest or the middle child and where they fall in the family and what that means and things like that. Um, and, and it's important to think about those things, and particularly when you hear that word firstborn. Because in the Bible, there's very specific things that, that is meant there. It is a sense of privilege. It is a sense of the firstborn is the one who gets the inheritance of the father. And, and we read in scripture that Christ is the heir, okay? And that we as believers, as Paul says in Romans eight seventeen, are co-heirs with Christ. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter one, and you see Paul, as he's laying out these glorious doctrines of the truth, uh, seeks to communicate this idea with um, his readers. In Ephesians one, verse 11, uh, he's talking about being in Christ. And so he says, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So he's talking about how he as apostle has uh, obtained that inheritance. But then he goes on and he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, someday we will receive that inheritance. One day we will, but not yet. But just until that time, God has given you a guarantee. He's given you a promise that you will receive that inheritance, and he gives you the Holy Spirit to show that that promise is true. And so we as firstborns, because of Christ, are, are will be members of this city, and every citizen will be a citizen of privilege. Have you thought about that? You know, sometimes if maybe, especially if you're a middle child, you may feel like you sort of get looked over. You think, oh, I think sometimes I was invisible in my family. I just I just want to belong. I want to be important. Well, as, as we come to the church of the firstborn, we are privileged. And we even read that those who are, are in this city are enrolled in heaven uh, as Revelation 21 tells us in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, so we come to the city, we come to the church of the firstborn, but we also come to God. Um, I mean, and it makes sense. If this is the city of God, then God would be there as well. But it's really interesting to see how the author describes God. He said, God, uh, he describes the God as, as the judge of all. Now, this is something that the Israelites could have understood, uh, especially um, what they found on Mount Sinai. They, they could relate to God as a God of judge, a, a law-giving God, a God who gave the Ten Commandments. And so for them, for sinners, this would have chilled even the warmest welcome because they would have thought of God in terms of being holy, which, which he is. But it's important to note that as the writer is, is describing God as judge in, in Hebrews 12, he doesn't speak of smoke or darkness or gloom or blaring trumpets or anything like that. As, as with Israel's experience at Mount Sinai, but instead he says in verse 23, he speaks of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He talks about the saints in heaven who have been perfected. They are perfect. They are set free from sin. They are not under 
judgment or God's wrath. And, and the reason for that is as we come to this holy city, as we come to the church of the firstborn, as we come to God as the judge, there we also come to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, in verse 24. You see, Moses was the mediator between God and the people of Sinai, but Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant in his blood, the one who takes away that fear of God, the one who satisfies the wrath of God, the one who opens wide the gate to paradise for all to come in. The people of, of Israel stood before God in all of this holiness with no one, no barrier between them and God. And so all they could expect was his wrath. As we come before God, God is the same. He is just as holy, but now we have a new mediator, Jesus Christ, one who has shed his blood to pay the cost for our sins that we might be seen holy in the sight of God. Now, now remember the point of the letter to the Hebrews, and, and we'll sort of see what this teaches. I mean, here are these Christians who are thinking, maybe I want to go back to the old covenant. Maybe I want to follow God the way I want to do it, rather than in Christ. And the writer is saying, that would be foolish. That would be folly to turn your back on Jesus as mediator to return to the old mediator, Moses. He could do nothing for you in your relationship with God. To go from this mountain of grace to the mountain of fear and darkness, that's what Sinai was. And he's like, you don't want to return there. And the writer goes on and he speaks of that blood uh, that was shed, that was sprinkled. And, and better yet, the word, um, he said, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, Moses uh, sprinkled the blood of sacrifice upon the people when the old covenant community was being formed. And Christ does the same thing for the new covenant community. As he sheds his own blood, he is the sacrifice. And he shed his blood, which we read about this morning from Matthew's gospel, uh, to, um, um, for his people uh, in the new covenant community. But he talks about this blood not just being sprinkled, but also speaking, which may sound sort of unusual until we look at it. Let's look closely at this. Uh, when Cain killed Abel, uh, God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, uh, he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In, in other words, the blood of your brother Abel calls for revenge because you killed him unjustly is, is really basically what, what God is saying. And so God places a curse on Cain for killing his brother Abel. You can read all about this in Genesis 4, verses 10 and following. But unlike Abel's blood, uh, the blood of Christ pleads with God for forgiveness and, and speaks peace to humanity. Uh, the blood of Christ removed the curse placed on fallen humanity and accomplished reconciliation and peace between God and mankind. What a contrast this is. I mean, both uh, Cain and, or excuse me, Abel and Christ were both killed by their brothers, uh, Abel by Cain and Christ by his fellow Jews. But the, the message is very different. Where Abel's uh, blood brought torment to his brother, Christ's blood cries peace, peace with God for those who place their faith in him. It's not that Christ died in a universal sense and every person was the benefit of that blood, but it's those who place their faith in him. 
Now, brothers and sisters, uh, this is good news. And, and this would be encouraging news for these Hebrew Christians as they're, they're wrestling. But, but the writer knew that he couldn't just stop there. He needed to press it. It's not just that they needed to know facts, but they needed to respond to that. And so, and so what is to be our response to this gospel message? Well, the writer says, in essence, here is, is what you must do. And we see this in verses 25 through 29. He said, first of all, you must, ignore, you must not ignore him who is speaking. In, in the old covenant, God spoke on Mount Sinai and the hearers begged that God would not speak anymore because they couldn't take it. But in the new covenant at Mount Zion, Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the author tells us, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking at verse 25. You see, if you, if you refuse to pay attention to the word spoken by God, is to engage in deliberate disobedience against him. And that's why the author says in verse 25, see to it, that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if they, that is, if the Israelites did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, that is when the Lord spoke to them from Mount Sinai, if they did not listen, um, and as a result of that, they were not able, not allowed to go into the promised land, which is a, a picture of our heavenly home in heaven, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. In other words, if Israel suffered God's judgment because of their sin of disobedience to listen to his word, how much more will that be true of those who reject Jesus, who continually speaks to us today? You know, Jesus, who's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, sends out his servants, ministers of the gospel, to go and to share the good news with all the nations of, of, how, we, of how God is holy and we are sinners and all we deserve is God's wrath and eternal damnation and judgment and hell. But God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to spill his blood, to give his life, to pay the penalty for our sin, so that by faith we might believe in him and we might trust in him. You see, God has sent out his servants. And then we read in verse 26, and at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. You see, when, when God spoke at Mount Sinai, the earth shook violently. Um, but, but then it goes on to describe how God will not only shake the earth, but he will shake the heavens as well. Well, that's a quote from Haggai chapter two. Haggai 2.6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And then he goes on to explain what that phrase, yet once more, refers to. It's, it's the removing of things which can be shaken, uh, things that are created, everything physical or material will be destroyed. Only things that are eternal will remain. And, and that's really important for us, especially if you think about our lives and the things that we oftentimes live for. Don't we oftentimes live to have a nice home, to, to have a successful career, to raise a family, um, to, to have uh, different things that are tied to this world? And he's reminding us here, all those things will be wiped away. All those things 
will, will be gone. They will mean nothing. Uh, God's shaking of the earth and the heaven is oftentimes referred to uh, as an image in the Bible to talk about God's judgment on the final day. Uh, you can, I won't look at it this morning, but you can look at Isaiah 13, 13, which, which speaks about that. But, but he reminds us that some things are unshakable and these things will remain. God has prepared a new heaven and a new earth, which will include, as Revelation 21, 1 says, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the kingdom. This is God ruling over his people, uh, loving them, caring for them, uh, which we will receive and, and which cannot be shaken. And that's why we read in verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all. No matter what we go through here upon this earth, we will be challenged and, and our lives can be upset. But the, the eternal rewards that the Lord has given us in his rule and in his kingdom and following him, those things can't be touched. Those things cannot be shaken. And Hebrews uh, 12, 29 even says, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, this would recall the minds of the hearers back to Mount Sinai and, and, and even quoting a statement made by Moses in Deuteronomy 4.24. Moses was warning the people about apostasy and adultery, about betraying the true God and following false gods. And, and, and Moses says this, he says, "'Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You see, never think that allegiance to God is a light matter. You know, sometimes I think we can mistakenly think that, well, the God of the Old Testament was a, a God of judgment, a God of law, a God of holiness. The God of the New Testament is sort of a pushover. He's more like a Santa Claus or a grandfatherly type. And that's not true. The Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is just as holy in the New Testament as he was in the Old Testament. He is a consuming fire who purifies all with whom he comes in contact. Uh, those God changes, therefore, live in reverence and in awe of him. That's the appropriate response as God changes our hearts. And so that leaves us this morning, leaves everyone is faced with, with a great choice in, in this life. Uh, and to the cacophony and all the different uh, noise, all the different voices, all the different activities of our lives, into our busy lives, into, into the routines of our daily existence, God is, is speaking. God calls into this world. He, he calls into each of us to, to trust in him, to to turn from our sins and to believe in him and to re not only repent of our sins, but to trust the things he says and to obey him and walk in obedience to him, to, to heed his voice. Now, it's not easy to listen to the call of God in this world when he calls us to live for a world that is yet to come. As Christians, we're, we're called to set our sight on that which is invisible, that which we cannot see, that which can only be understood by faith. 
But God doesn't intend for it to be easy. It, it is the costly devotion of our hearts that he seeks. It, it is always to be that way. As the Bible says, we must lose our lives in order to save them. We, we must give up the world to gain the kingdom of God. A, a place in God's kingdom is free, uh, free for us though, that is through faith in Jesus Christ, but it will cost us everything else in the world. And I will tell you this, brothers and sisters, that is a bargain. That is a bargain. I mean, think about this world in which we live. Look at the things that are going on around us. Do, do you really desire to live for the things and satisfy the lust and the desires of your heart? Do you really want to pursue the, the chaos and, and all the craziness that is going on in this world and, and, and then in turn give up your eternal soul to the judgment of God and the fires of hell? Or would you not much rather uh, give yourself and your heart to Jesus? Who, who will give you uh, a reward, bring you to an eternal city, uh, to the church of the firstborn, uh, to uh, the mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. And he does so, so that he could have that treasure because it's more important to him than anything else. Therefore, uh, seeing a, a shaking of the heavens and the earth and, and receiving by faith a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we ought to live in reverent thanksgiving before God, even as we go through the difficulties of this life, even as we, we feel more the isolation in, in the culture in which we live and, and we feel the realities of what it means to live in a fallen world, and we can be tempted to turn to the idols of our hearts. We may want to be like the Hebrews and say, well, I still want to believe in God, but I want to live my life the way I want to live that. And the writer is reminding us, no, we need to set our eyes upon Jesus. It, it reminds me of the words of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, where Peter says to the church he's writing to, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Brothers and sisters, may all of our hope rest upon Jesus, who's coming as soon, who is worthy of all that we can give, and who is more than able to preserve all that we place into his hands, even our very existence. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, if, if, if God has been speaking to you, but you've just not been listening, maybe you've even sought to harden your heart, but this morning, it's getting through. Uh, you're hearing the voice of God. Then, then I encourage you to turn to him. If you wanna know more about that, please contact me. I'd love, love to speak to you more about that. 
but he calls you to, to turn to him, to acknowledge not only that God exists, but to <coughs> recognize that in his holiness that, that you are a sinner against him and that he is calling you to ask him for forgiveness and to turn from that sin and, and to follow him. And like I said, I would love to talk to you more about that. But let's take just a moment this morning, if we could, and let's just uh, have a few moments to, to meditate on the word that is preached and, and let us respond accordingly to God in prayer. Father, as we have prayed earlier this morning in our confession of sin, uh, we oftentimes do forget the many blessings and the riches that we have in Christ. But as these have been laid out before us this morning, we pray, uh, Lord, for you to encourage uh, those who are, who are struggling, those who are, are weak, those, Lord, who maybe are, are, are questioning your goodness and struggling. Lord, please encourage really all of us. We need to be reminded to, to turn to you that this world is, is not our home, that, that God, that you are at work in a mighty and a powerful way, that before us lies a glorious uh, riches and wealth in, in terms of a relationship with you, that we get to spend all eternity in your presence, enjoying the, the, the fellowship with not only other believers, but more importantly with you, and that we can worship and, and rejoice in all that you ha and have and are doing on behalf of our people. Uh, Father, I do pray for those that are here today that you would uh, water seeds that have been planted. Lord, that you would cause seeds that have already been watered to grow, to produce a fruit uh, to your glory. We thank you, God, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat>